This episode is unlike anything I've covered so far on the show. Let me ask you, do you know what a research synchronous language is? Or what about hybrid systems? No? Well, let's try. Have you heard of Zealous or Probzealous? If you answered no to one of the above questions, then you're just like me. And that's why I invited Guillaume Baudard for this episode, to teach us about all these fascinating topics. Guillaume is a researcher in programming languages who works on Probzealous, a probabilistic extension to Zealous, itself a research synchronous language to implement hybrid systems. To simplify, Zealous is a modeling framework to simulate the dynamics of systems, both smooth and subject to discrete dynamics. If you've ever worked with ODEs, for instance, ordinary differential equations, you may be similar with these terms. If you're not, well, great, Guillaume will explain everything in the episode. And I know it might sound niche, but this kind of approach actually has very important applications, such as proving that there are no bugs in a program. Guillaume did his PhD at École Normale Supérieure in Paris, working on reactive programming languages and quasi-periodic systems. He then worked in the AI programming team of IBM Research before coming back to the École Normale Supérieure, working mostly on reactive and probabilistic programming. On his free time, Guillaume loves spending time with his family, playing the violin with friends, and cooking. This is Learning Bayesian Statistics. Episode 86, recorded May 22, 2023. Welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics, a fortnightly podcast on Bayesian inference, the methods, the projects, and the people who make it possible. I'm your host, Alex Andorra. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andorra, like the country, for any info about the podcast, learnbasedstats.com is la place to be. Show notes, becoming a corporate sponsor, supporting LBS on Patreon, unlocking Bayesian merch, everything is in there. That's learnbasedstats.com. If with all that info, a Bayesian model is still resisting you, or if you find my voice especially smooth and want me to come and teach Bayesian stats in your company, then reach out at alex.andora at pymc-labs.io or book a call with me at learnbaystats.com. Thanks a lot, folks, and best Bayesian wishes to you all. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian. Change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. Wes Abazian is someone who cares about evidence and doesn't jump to assumptions based on intuitions and prejudice. Abazian makes predictions on the best available info and adjusts the probability because every belief is provisional. And when I kick a flow, mostly I'm watching eyes widen. Maybe because my likeness lowers expectations of tight rhyming. How would I know unless I'm rhyming in front of a bunch of blind men dropping placebo control? science like I'm Richard Feynman. Hello, my dear Bayesians. Just a quick note to let you know that I am also recording the video of the episodes now. So if you are watching on YouTube, from now on, you can enjoy full-fledged video. And if you're a patron of the show, you can even join the recordings to ask your questions live. So I hope to see you soon in the LBS community and in the LBS studio. Now, let's go on with the episode. Guillaume Baudard, bienvenue sur Learning Bayesian Statistics. Thanks. So, I'm very proud because I am increasing the quota of French people on the show. 
<laughs> this is good. We had a really recent one with Nicolas Chopin. It was episode 82. So yeah, like French community is making its way slowly but surely on the podcast. I'm pretty sure some people are not happy with that, but that's okay. <laughs> So, Guillaume, yeah, super happy to have you on the show. I want to thank Virgil Andreani for putting us in contact. So Virgil is a fellow PyMC developer. He's also working with us now at PyMC Labs. So it's really cool that uh, he made that connection between us two. I have so many questions for you today. It's going to be an original episode because a lot of the things we're going to talk today, I think I've never really covered them on the podcast. So that is perfect. So thank you, Virgil. And now, without further ado, let's um, dive in and, as usual, start with your origin story. Guillaume, how did you come to the world of statistics and probabilistic languages and how sinuous of a path was it? Well, so first, thank you very much for having me. I really enjoy the show, so thank you very much. And to answer your question, it was definitely not a straight path. So as a kid, I just wanted to do music. And then I, for some reason, I went to science and math and I did a, like a straight French curriculum in math and computer science. Mm -hmm. Then during my master, I tried to reconcile the two these two aspects. And I did a master in uh, uh, computer science, signal processing, acoustic, uh, everything in science applied to music, basically. So it was at IRCAM, so which is a, a small part of the Pompidou Center that is focusing on uh, music and uh, modern art. Mm -hmm. And so during this year, I played a little bit with uh, machine learning, uh, Gaussian mixture and stuff like that. I was working on this project called Antescofo, which is a, a music score follower. Uh, basically, you have live instruments that try to play with electronics. Uh -huh. This was the first time I saw some Bayesian methods because uh, the score follower, the thing that was trying to see where the instrumentist was playing in the score, uh, was mm -hmm. implemented with some kind of, uh, of particle filter or a Kalman filter. So I, I saw these vague notions and I, I remember like discussing that with a, with a friend and, um, and then I, I, I stopped and I did, <laughs> I did a PhD on a completely different topic, which was on embedded systems. And at the end of my PhD, I was hired by IBM Research. Mm -hmm. And after a few years at IBM Research, they asked us to look into probability programming because they said, Hey, look, looks like it's a hot topic right now. Mm. Could be interesting for us. So can you, can you take a look? And this is where I started to actively learn about probabilistic programming, Bayesian method and stuff like that. Starting from the very basic, like the, the survey paper, like the first paper I read was uh, Andrew Gordon and co-authors that is called probabilistic programming. Like the, mm -hmm. And it was published in the future of uh, software engineering tracks at XC or something like that. So yeah. yeah that's and nice. and uh, after a while, like, uh, we we were working uh, mostly with uh, with Louis Mandel, and uh, we we had a similar background in embedded system and reactive programming, and mm -hmm. um, we had this idea that maybe we can combine probabilistic programming with uh, reactive programming and see how far we can go. And this was the beginning of uh, Probzilus, and I'm still actively working on that. Okay, nice. I, I didn't know with that background story. So, in what kind of uh, music were you? into like what was your uh, dream uh, ideal career path in music oh for me depending at what age right <laughs> so yeah when i was very little i, I wanted to be a, a solo violinist <laughs> and oh, then you, okay 
you quickly realize that you are not good enough. Mm -hmm. That's a good part with violin. And uh, so then later, I really wanted to do, uh, apply science uh, around music. I built some stuff for uh, musicians and things like that. And then I got more interested in the science part and programming languages and semantics and stuff like that. Yeah, this is so nice. Yeah, I mean, I understand. Violinist. This is quite cool. Yeah, always extremely impressed by by this instrument and the ones who are able to <laughs> play it so masterfully. I mean, you have also played it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and also, I mean, the connection between math and um, and music is actually quite quite close, right? Even though I would think that if you take some random persons in the street, they would not necessarily make that uh, connection very fast. But it's something that I often say that like, music is actually very mathematical and that all kind of translates the beauty of math yeah. in a way. Thanks. I have a better idea now. And so I think you already kind of answered that, but maybe let me ask you more formally if you remember how you first got introduced to Bayesian methods. Yeah, so the, the, the first encounter was uh, this uh, score-following systems where you try to align a score with a live mm -hmm. musician. And you have some priors about, uh, I mean, the priors are is basically the score, right? Expect the musician to be, and you have a, an estimation of the, the tempo, the speed at which the musician is going. And you, you want to, based on observation, so the, the sound that you actually hear, you want to align the score with the, okay. the live performance. Nice, so okay. Yeah. first system. Yeah, very Bayesian indeed. <laughs> and you have an interesting work, but for me, it's hard to define it. So how would you define the work you're doing today and also the topics that you are particularly interested in? Right. So right now, so I'm, I'm back in France after a few years in the US at IBM Research. Mm -hmm. And I'm uh, in an INRIA team uh, that is working on uh, reactive languages for uh, embedded systems. Mm -hmm. The idea is how you design your embedded systems and then build the entire compilation chain so that you have strong guarantees on the code that executes on your embedded system. And uh -huh. we are targeting like a critical embedded system, like airplane controller or something like that. So you, you really want to be sure of uh, what you're doing. And on top of that, I want to add uh, Bayesian inference. So I, I want embedded system designers to be able to write their own probabilistic models and use that as part of the, of the design of their, uh, of their system. And so the interesting part is that you can use that. There is two ways to use a, a probabilistic model. Right? You could use that to simulate your environment because you have an, you have an open environment. So it's always useful to have something that uh, gives some uncertainty, but you can also use that inside the system. And the, the, the classic example is that you, you want to implement a tracker uh, for your position. You want to estimate your position from noisy observations. So mm -hmm. the classic way to do that in embedded system is to manually uh, manually code uh, some stochastic controller or some stochastic method, say a Kalman filter, for instance. Mm -hmm. But what we want to do is to give the programmer the ability to write the underlying probabilistic models with all the uncertainty everywhere and leave the compiler and the runtime do the hard job for you of computing the, the solution. Mm. So this is uh, why we are trying to develop Probzilis and Of course, Probzilis is just an academic prototype so far, but uh, this is mm -hmm. a long-term goal. Okay, yes. So that's that's um, that's a bit clearer. So actually, yeah, let's dive into Probzilis. And uh, can you give us an overview of, of Probzilis and its significance in the field of 
programming languages? Yeah, Probzilus is a, is a synchronous language uh, that is extended with probabilistic constructs. And first, I, I would like to mention that this is a joint project with a, a group at MIT, so the group of Mike Carbin at MIT, and uh, most notably uh, Eric Atkinson and Ben Sherman at the beginning, and then Charles Rahn and more recently uh, Eli Chen, who are working with us. And so maybe I should start by describing what a synchronous language is. The idea is that you want to program with uh, with streams because you want to program uh, systems that will never stop, right? So you can see your system as a stream processor. Everything is a stream. So instead of 42, you have 42, 42, 42 all the time. And everything is based on a discrete notion of time. So at each time step, you compute a new value for all your variables in your program. Okay, And so you compute streams of values that we sometimes call flows. And you build your block by assembling these uh, this stream processors, right? And this is, so for uh, for control engineers, there was, there was this notation that was called block diagrams, where you could compose these blocks together, and in each arrow you have a stream, and each block is a, is a stream processor. And so it comes from that. And the, the core idea of uh, synchronous languages, which are very... Very French notion, like synchronous uh, languages were introduced in the 80s by three teams in France concurrently. The idea was to restrict what you could express in the language, such that you have a very precise formal semantics for the language, and you you can have a, a compilation chain that gives you a, a lot of very good guarantees in the code. And the main guarantees that you are looking for is uh, execution with bounded memory. So you, you are guaranteed that uh, whatever you do, you will never blow up the memory which is useful because the system never terminates again. So it should be able to keep running and running and running. Yeah, so this is synchronous languages, data flow synchronous languages. And on top of that, we want to add the classic probabilistic construct. So uh, you want to be able to sample from a distribution and you want some conditioning. So observe, observe a variable from a distribution. And then you want to infer the posterior distribution from prior Z observations. So if you, if you think about the difference with uh, uh, general probabilistic languages, now what you want to do is to infer a stream of distribution. So at each time step, based on some observation, you want to output uh, posterior at a given time step. A key property of Probzelus is that you want a reactive system. So you want to be able to interact with intermediate results of the inference. And this is different from most probabilistic languages where you have a, a bunch of observations and you want to compute the posterior and you can throw away intermediate results like you don't really care. Uh, here, we want to observe them and potentially we want to react to what we've seen, which might change future inference. So if you think about a, a tracker, for instance, you are estimating your position and based on this estimation, you can take one direction or another, which would change the next observation. And so, yeah, so we, we call that inherent in the loop, and this was something that uh, was really at the heart of the design of the, of the language. And then to talk a little bit about the inference, so we, we have this, uh, this, this language that is a bit weird, and then we had to come up with a, an inference algorithm that would work with uh, all these constraints. And uh, we ended up using uh, sequential Monte Carlo methods uh, that you talked a lot with Nicolas Chopin in a previous episode. And this was because uh, exactly for what I just said is that you, you, you get access to these intermediate results. And yeah, so this, uh, this makes sense. And so we were able to build the first prototype with basic sequential Monte Carlo, like a basic bootstrap filter relatively quickly. And uh, we were really happy that it, it worked. And uh, we, 
we focused on the semantics for a while and this was this was a little bit tricky but then like uh, eric and ben they, they 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 read this paper sweden i think which was about uh, automatic how black realization of a sequential monte carlo method so the idea is that you want to do symbolic computation as much as possible because like a basic particle filter doesn't scale really well and the performance are not that great, especially for big models like here. And there was this paper that was called, uh, I think, Automatic Raoul Black Realization, something, something, by uh, Laurence Murray and Daniel Duden and David Broman. And yeah, and the idea is that you have this uh, runtime that is trying to do symbolic computation as much as possible. So trying to apply probability uh, theory as much as possible, mostly conjugate priors rule. When that fails, you fall back on a, on a particle filter. So you sample some of the variables and you try to, to keep on going like that. And so, and the design of this inference, of this algorithm for Probzelus, because we wanted to adapt this algorithm such that it would run in bandit memory. So this was the first, uh, this made the first uh, true prototype for Probzelus. Nice. Okay. And so, and to be clear, so we'll put the, the GitHub repo, of course, in the show notes of Propzilus. And what do people who are interested in this, how can they run it? Oh, so uh, everything is, is open source. So it's on GitHub. Mm -hmm. So you can find the, you can find the prototypes. There is a bunch of uh, examples, bunch of benchmarks also, if you want to, to try that. You do have to get used to the syntax. Uh, so. It's probably easier for people who are familiar with OCaml. <laughs> so everything is written in OCaml. But, uh, yeah, you can, you can try it. There is no need to install anything apart from OCaml. Mm, okay. Yeah. Nice. And do you need, are you at a stage where you need some people to come in and do some, some pull requests or are you still at a very uh, early stage of the development? I would say we are in, in the middle of that. So, uh, it's, uh, it's, Not like the, the repo is not really polished in the sense that uh, there is a lot of missing stuff in the doc and uh, it's mostly, uh, as I said, an academic prototype, but it's always nice to have a full request and contributor. So if people want to take a look, like, please do. Nice. Yeah. So folks, we'll put that into the show notes and uh, feel free to check it out and we'll add some, send some pull requests to the, the PropZellus team. Oh yeah, actually, so you talked a bit about like the different advantages that Propzilis would offer, especially if you're working on that kind of, of topics. And before we dive a bit more into that, because this is a very technical use case. So I would be interested if you could explain a bit more now, something that I've read in preparing this episode is that So there's this concept of synchronous languages that you talked about, probabilistic asynchronous languages, which is Propzilus. And I saw that it relates to hybrid systems modeling. Can you talk a bit about that so that listeners get a better idea of how and when these languages would be useful? Right. As I said, like synchronous languages and data flow synchronous languages, so, so they So the original uh, language for that was called Lustre or Luster in uh, uh -huh. or English speaker in the 80s. And then more recently, uh, there was a lot of work by uh, Marc Pouzet and uh, Timothy Bourks and, and co-authors about the programming language Zelus, which is also a synchronous language, but that was extended with uh, dynamic, like continuous dynamics. So the idea is that you want in the same language 
to write your discrete controller using your data flow stream processors. But you also want to, want to simulate environment. And a physical environment is typically described with a ordinary differential equation. Mm -hmm. And so Delus was a, was a huge effort to be able to do everything in the same language. And you could, uh, then the compiler would separate the part that, uh, that talked about the environment and the part that has a discrete controller and link ODE solvers and run the entire uh, simulation. What you have in Zilus is that you, you really have a full synchronous language in the classic uh, sense, uh, that is discrete time and uh, with a stream combinators and stuff like that. But you also have uh, continuous dynamics. And ProbZilus is focusing only on the discrete part so far because uh, it was already hard enough to <laughs> extend everything and to do the, the language design. This is a, a, also a long-term goal. How can we reconcile the two worlds, like uh, probabilistic programming on one hand and uh, continuous dynamics on the other hand? So we played a little bit with that, and I think if you, if you look at the repo, there, there are some examples that are already there. But it's really toy examples, like um, you launch a, a bouncing ball, And you are just listening to the, like the tick that, uh, that does the ball when it rebounds and you are trying to compute the gravity based on that. Oh, nice. And so, yeah. So this kind of, uh, this kind of type. Ah, okay. Nice. And so this kind of example would be what you would describe as a hybrid system. Yeah, so basically you embed an ordinary differential equation inside the probabilistic model. And so, Yeah, another way to see it is that you, like for uh, probabilistic programming in general, what you are describing is a generative process. And the, for, for this generative process, you, you need to solve an ordinary differential equation. And so, it, yeah, so it, it's... A Which really is usually very problem. hard. Yeah, and so uh, we are, right now, in, for the Thai example, we limit ourselves to very simple inference algorithm for once and we also limit ourselves to a, a particular kind of uh, differential equations where you, you just like the probabilities only occurs on discrete uh, events so you don't have uh, it's, it's easier to explore basically. I see okay yeah yeah because ODEs are usually really nasty to yeah. uh, to infer, right? At least in the Bayesian framework, I don't know, I don't know in other frameworks, but at least in the Bayesian framework, it can get very nasty to to estimate. Yeah, so that, that's why I said it's a, it's a long term goal. It's like we we played around and uh, everything that you need in the language, like for a programmer point of view, but there is everything to do for the runtime and the compilation. And yeah. I've talked a bit about that. We've had Dimitri on the show. I don't remember the number of the episode, but I'll we'll put that on the show notes. And also Adrian Zabold, episode 74, if I remember correctly. Adrian created a Python library called Sunodi that plays well with PyMC, of course, because Adrian is a PyMC dev. So I'll put that in the show notes also. I know Adrian does a lot of, of work on that and uh, he's usually very keen to work on very hard mathematical problems. So if he's working on that, you can be sure that it's because it's interesting math mathematically. Yeah. Can you um, can just sum up for, for the listeners why ODs are so hard to, to infer for the Bayesian, in the Bayesian framework? Right. So in general, like from a mathematical point of view, I'm not sure I have anything interesting to say here, but for, uh, for, for all prototypes, You can imagine that you, you have a, a particle filter. So the way you do inference is that you, you simulate 
bunch of uh, parallel executions of the same generative process, and you accumulate all these particles, and that gives you an approximation of the of the posterior distributions. Mm -hmm. And if you think about the ODEs, you need to solve the ODE, so you need to embed one ODE solver per particle. Assuming you need like uh, 10,000 particles to get a reasonable result, you need 10,000 instances of uh, an ODE solver, and it quickly explodes. So Yeah. For sure. The other thing is that the, the semi-symbolic method that we are focusing on for Probzegus, like we, we, at this point, we have no idea how to derive the math, right? If you have simple uh, conjugate relationships between pairs of random variables, or like if you have a, a tree of, uh, of things that you can, you know that you will be able to compute a closed, uh, closed form solution, then you can work with that. But if you have, uh, if you have, uh, if you need to solve an arbitrary ordinary differential equation in the middle of that, Oh, that's uh, an entirely open question. Thanks for that small summary and totally on the go, by the way. I didn't ask him to prepare for that at all, so <laughs> well done. <laughs> Now that we have the, um, the background a bit about this hybrid, this extremely hard to say as a French person, I'm just going to say hybrid. <laughs> so hybrid systems, how does Probzelis differ from other probabilistic programming languages in the, in that respect? There are a couple of points here. So one thing is that, as I said, you have a, you have inference in the loop. That is a, a main difference between a general uh, probabilistic programming. Like if, you, if you think about Stan, for example, you, you are defining an entire... Uh, your program is a model, and there is, the goal is to infer the posterior of this model, right? Here, we, we want to interleave deterministic components with probabilistic components, and there is a possible interaction between them. So think about the, the tracker model and a controller of a robot, and you want the controller to go somewhere using the, the estimation. The other thing is that we do need, like we, we have some constraints, as I said, like we, we want to execute in bounded memory, and we want to be able to access intermediate results. So that drastically limits the, the inference algorithms that we are able to use. Like that's why we, we ended up with SMC. And it's still an open question whether we can, we can do, we can explore other things. Like, uh, and what, what would be, uh, what would be a good other options for that. And the last thing is that we want to be able to check, like in the, in the same line of thoughts as a, a synchronous languages, we want to be able to check some constraints. Like we want to be able to check that a program will run in bounded memory. And if you, if you remember, we have this weird runtime where we are trying to do symbolic computation. And this is using a huge dynamic structure that is basically trying to build a Bayesian network at runtime and try to simplify this Bayesian network as you go and sample some variables if you, if you fail. Checking that this executes in bounded memory is uh, actually uh, tricky. And um, what we did, and uh, it was mostly uh, Eric Atkinson ideas at the beginning, was uh, to define a static analysis that is able to look at your program and tell you before running it whether it will run in bounded memory or not using oh, nice. uh, our algorithm. So, yeah, so that's That's a very, very interesting, uh, interesting work. And the, the main idea is that you have, uh, like, as I said, you are building these uh, Bayesian networks at runtime, and it's possible that you will have infinite paths, like, as you go, like, you, you keep adding some random variables, and you want to be sure that uh, at some point you can collect some of the nodes. Like, you can, you can remove some of the nodes from the graph safely because you have no way to access them anymore. And, yeah, so you, you need to define some condition on your program, such that this is always true. Mm. 
Okay. And of course, it's a static analysis, so you have a, you have false positive. And <laughs> I mean, you, you can guarantee that something will run in bounded memory, but for some programs, they actually run in bounded memory, but we are not able to do Yeah, that's such a hard use case because you not only have to worry about the the sampling time and the algorithm and just like the efficiency and accuracy of the algorithm, but also the memory load is really something extremely important in this case. Yeah. yeah. There is also something that we, we didn't touch about that. It's uh, it's uh, the worst case execution time, which is something really important for uh, embedded systems. And here we, we, we haven't started working on that. Like, um, how, how costly are the inference algorithms? This is also a good question. Yeah, super interesting. And the, see, yeah, actually, let's try now to dive a bit more concretely now that we have a better idea of the context and the, the implementation. Can you tell us some real-world applications of Propsilis and its ability to simulate these systems that you were talking about? Oh, no. Oh, yeah, no. Maybe just before that, actually, a distinction that I think we should again make is basically the ability to simulate dynamics in systems with smooth dynamics and systems with discrete dynamics because I saw it was something also while reading up on the on the episode that could be important. Is that something that you have? Yeah, can you tell us, give us a background about that maybe? Yeah, so we, we are in Probzelus, like we are we are still in a discrete world. Like we can actually I, I shouldn't tell that because there is two notions of continuous, right? So so <laughs> when I say we are in a discrete world, it means that uh, we have a discrete notion of time and uh, at each time step, like, like you compute streams of values or streams of distributions, but you have a notion of uh, what is the value of each streams at each time step, right? Uh-huh. Okay. Then you, you have, you can, you can program your uh, probabilistic models using continuous or discrete distributions. Okay. This is something you can do. But so far we need, if you want to do some, uh, simulation of, uh, I don't know, like physics, thing like that, you need to discretize it. In Probzelus. That being said, since Probzelus is built on top of uh, the programming language Zelus, you can express some continuous component and use that as a set to generate some observation that you fit to your model. But the model itself needs to be discrete. Okay, I see. And so to answer your question about uh, concrete applications, so what we did to play an experiment with Probzelus is uh, starting with uh, use cases from robotics. And so we we had this uh, use case where we we wanted to implement a, a, a non-trivial robot controller, and so we we implemented a, a linear quadratic regulator, which is known to be optimal for some metrics. And uh, the idea is that we wanted to use a tracker model that is implemented as an HMN, uh, so estimating position from a noisy observations at each time step, and feed that to the LQR and see whether you can reach the objective or not. So this was one use case, and we have we have um, one other application is that uh, we we build a toy uh, version of the slam problem, you know, the simultaneous uh, location and mapping problem. So very briefly, like you have an agent that is trying to estimate its position and a map of its environment, right? And in the discrete version, the the, the environment is just a grid uh, that is painted black or white. And you can, the agent can look at its feet and see white or black and move to another cell. And the problem is that uh, the, 
the sensor is faulty, so sometimes you see white and uh, the the square is actually black. And also you have slippery wheels. Sometimes you say, I want to go up, and you, you actually stay in place, or go right and stay in place. And given that, uh, you want to estimate both current position and a view of the map. And the, the interesting part in Propzelius is that we, we were also able to, to build a simple controller that was trained to explore the part of the map with the most uncertainty first. So because you have this, uh, this retroaction between the result of the inference and the uh, and the controller. Yeah, this is so nice. Is there any paper or video or tutorials that you can add to the show notes uh, demonstrating that? Uh, yeah, so the, um, the first paper on Probzelius was published at PLEI in uh, 2020. And uh, in this paper, we described uh, the robot example, I think, and the ah, slam example. And then in subsequent work, we try to improve the semi-symbolic uh, engine, like moving away from a the original algorithm and trying to express more things. And there is another robot example. And so this one was at uh, Oopsla 2022, I think. I will add some. Yeah, for sure. Like, and uh, add these two ones to the, to the show notes. Pretty sure listeners will appreciate that. And another thing I was really curious about when preparing for your episode was that Probzillus can be used to prove the absence of bugs in a complex systems, which if I understood, if I understood correctly. So basically like trying to prove that there is no bugs in an autopilot of a plane. So did I understood that right? And if yes, how is that possible? Because that's really hard to me to be able to prove a negative? I don't think this is quite right, but this is an interesting question. Okay. So feel free to say I'm wrong. Like I'm wrong a lot of times. So that's <laughs> no problem. No, it's not true. It's probably misadvertisement, I guess. But the, I mean, the motivation for uh, this kind of language is like putting aside the probabilistic part is that what you write is really close to the mathematical uh, semantics. Uh, so it's, it's really close to the mathematical object. Okay. And then all uh, the, the idea behind the work of, on uh, synchronous languages is that the compilation chain is correct by construction. So what you execute is exactly what you wrote. And for uh, classic synchronous languages, there are uh, some proof assistants or model checkers that are dedicated to these lang this languages or programs written in these languages. Because again, the expressivity is very restricted. So the problem can be a little bit easier. So in some cases, you are able to prove uh, some properties. So not the absence of bug, but uh, you can prove some properties, like say, like an alarm will always go on, or you, you never have buffer overflows or things like that. Mm. In the same vein, we do have static analysis that guarantee a bunch of stuff. And like the, the work on the, on the static analysis to prove bounded memory execution uh, is part of that. Like we can prove that there is no bug with respect to execution in bounded memory, but that's, uh, that's pretty much. Okay. But uh, so that, that would be something that could be tried, that you could try to use to try and see if there is no bug in, a, in an autopilot, basically. Yeah. So that's a more like, there is a model checker that is called uh, kind2 for uh, used like languages, like uh, synchronous uh -huh. languages. And you can try to write your uh, autopilot program then write the properties that you want to be true for this program and see if you can automatically prove them. And so check if there are mistakes or not. What we haven't tried is uh, to use that on probabilistic models. And uh, what do we need? 
what do we need to do to extend these tools to be able to verify probabilistic models? And like, this is an entire new area of research, like, like doing the kind of work that people do with proof assistant and model checkers, but manip manipulating uh, probabilities is, uh, I think it's fascinating and I haven't looked at that yet. I know that there is a very recent paper that uh, proved a, a stand compiler in Coq by Jean-Baptiste Tristan and Joseph Tafaruti at Boston College. People, if people are interested, like, uh, probably something to check. Hmm. Yeah, for sure. And again, add that to the show notes because that's definitely something super interesting and I'm pretty sure uh, listeners will be interested. And if you are, folks, uh, let me know and um, I could invite some of the, the authors of this analysis to, to the show to do some follow-up episodes. So something I'd like to talk about also is now we have an idea of what Probzillus is about and what it allows you to do. Now I'm curious about the frontier, basically, of the of the package and the challenges and limitations that practitioners will face or are facing right now when working with a language like Probzillus. Yeah, there are actually two questions here, right? Uh, so uh, as a practitioner, like uh, Probzillus is, is, a, is a prototype, so you can run example and try to simulate some example on your own laptop, but it's not at a state where you can embed the code. And actually, so um, I come from the community of uh, programming language design and semantics and stuff like that. And the low-level aspects of uh, what you need to do to output low-level code is uh, not something that we focused that much on. And so right now, the, the prototype is uh, emitting OCaml code, so it's a relatively high level. And... Uh, there is still a lot of work to do from going from OCaml to a low level C or Rust or whatever code that you want to embed. So uh, what we wanted to do is to have something to be able to uh, do some experiments and prove some ideas and see what we, we were able to express. So it's not something that you can already use to program your embedded system. That being said, like a lot of ideas, like uh, a lot of ideas that uh, originated from our team and mostly from Mark Pouzet when he was working on Lustre and Lucid Synchrone and then Zelus uh, were adopted uh, by ANSYS. And there is an industrial tool that is, that is called SCADE that is used, for example, at Airbus to program, uh, to program airplane controller but not with the probabilistic part, of course. Mm, okay. And for, for researcher, I think there, there are a lot of uh, interesting questions. So one thing that was really tricky for us was to define the semantics of the language. So what, what are the mathematical objects that you manipulate with the language? Because we have this, uh, we have two things, right? We have this notion of streams, and you want to be able to combine streams inside the probabilistic world. So what does that even mean? And you want to add this inference in the loop. So what does that mean to look at intermediate results? Right? Mm -hmm. So defining the semantic was tricky, so that's one point. And then the, the restrictions that we have because of the settings also imposing new constraints. So yeah, the main example is uh, bounded resources. Yeah, so like definitely something that will be uh, <laughs> on the roadmap for, for a long time. And the last thing I wanted to say is for practitioners is uh, one thing that is very tricky is to convince people that it's actually useful. Because uh, uh, like okay. embedded system designers, they are used to uncertainty, right? We, we, we do have airplanes everywhere that are flying around and uh, they do evolve in an uncertain world with, uh, with a noisy environments. They do encounter birds sometimes and they have to react to that. So how did they do that? Like, uh, <laughs> And the answer is that they are manually coding some stochastic controllers that are proved, that are uh, 
prove to be safe on pen and paper, but they are, they are deriving the, the equation by hand and they are programming that, right? So if you, if you talk to a mobility stand designer, they are used to say Kalman filters, for example. They know how to implement that. And yeah. so this is all I need to estimate the position. And I know how to derive the equation. So why should I write uh, the probabilistic models? And the point we want to make is that by making the, the underlying probabilistic model completely explicit, you make explicit all your assumptions about, about the environment. And that's actually better and easier to modify and it's more modular and, and so on. Yeah. And that's interesting because it's also a general remark, I would say, about patient statistics, right? Yeah. <laughs> it is definitely something I, I, have to say a lot also in a lot of my courses and teachings and consulting work where uh, it's definitely a lot of this. Why would that kind of met method be useful? Which is a good question. I mean, I like that question. And, and yeah, usually the explicit modeling and explicitation of your priors, which are just assumptions to me is something that makes that framework pretty powerful. Yeah, and the other thing is that sometimes it's difficult to, I mean, it, it's um, like there is a step that people need to make when they are, they are trying to use Bayesian methods, right? Uh, they, they need to think about the generative process and, and stuff like that. And it's not completely natural, at least for some people. And uh, it's, it's difficult to convince them that it's actually better <laughs> than writing the solution. And... Um, I mean, the Kalman filter is a perfect example because you can always say, oh, but you are already doing that. Like it's, uh, <laughs> it's just uh, the same direction. No, for sure. That's always something that really interests me. And actually talking about that teachings and things like that, you caught out, caught out, again, really hard to say for French people, caught out <laughs> class on probabilistic programming languages in France at the École Normale Supérieure, which I found super interesting because First, I don't know how new PPLs are in the in the curriculum, but as a very old person in my university years, so a beginning of the 2010s, patient statistics was absolutely not taught at the university level like that with that kind of courses that you did really in depth and going to into probabilistic programming languages and so on. So first, I'm super happy about that. <laughs> it's super cool. So yeah, like I'm curious just in general about that course first, because does that mean that you find that patient statistics and probabilistic programming languages are getting more traction at the university level in, at least in France? And second, you taught it from the perspective of programming language research. So I'm curious about the key takeaways or insights that you gained from teaching this, to me, quite unique angle. Yeah, that's great questions. So, yeah, so this started when I, when I uh, went back to France. So I was contacted by uh, Christine Tasson, who was working on the uh, probabilistic programming, but uh, from a really uh, uh, semantics point of view, like uh, denotational semantics and category theory and stuff like that. And she wanted to build... Uh, a proposal for a course at uh, MPRI, so it's a, a Parisian master uh, for uh, research in computer science, I would say, something like that. Uh, maybe there is an official acronym in English, I should say. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so it's uh, it's not only uh, ENS students, there are also uh, people from uh, um, 
Paris 7 University. Oh, it's not Paris 7 anymore, it's a Paris City uh, University and Polytechnique and Paris Saclay and uh, people from all background. But these are, these are students with a very strong background in the theoretical computer science and uh, mathematics. And so uh, the emphasis for the course was really uh, to do something that was in the middle between uh, a practical implementation and uh, semantics and uh, denotational semantics, uh, typing, category theory, and programming language theory. So I think it got accepted, like the proposal got accepted because probabilistic programming is getting more and more traction. And you can see like there is a, a boom in the number of uh, published papers on the topic. So that must have been uh, one reason. And the other thing is that there were there were other courses that were teaching a little bit of uh, probabilistic programming, like for example, there is a probabilistic lambda calculus or uh, like a, another course on uh, denotational semantics that were presenting this uh, probabilistic programming as a, as a use case, um, as a, not, not really a use case, but a part of the, of the course. And what we wanted to do is to propose something that was really focused on Bayesian inference. And how do you reason about that? And so for the, for the second question, it was interesting. So the idea was to divide the course between Christine and me. So Christine was doing the denotational semantics and uh, like a really uh, abstract formal uh, part of the course. And I really wanted to give the students a taste of uh, how can you implement these things and uh, what can we use from a probabilistic, uh, from a programming language theory that can help us. And so, for example, so this includes like uh, building a type system uh, for a probabilistic language and then how to use like uh, functional programming to implement your uh, your own runtime libraries with your own uh, your own inference algorithms and uh, things like that. And, and progressively adding more and more to the language design. And, um, and yeah, and the last thing is that uh, we wanted to give them a test of uh, a lot of different probabilistic programming languages, and so we we try to build some labs that are using a lot of different flavor of probabilistic uh, languages, so like uh, uh, Stan, Pyro. Um, it's not not PyMC yet, but uh, not PyMC. Maybe, well, maybe what's not, that? I did use an example from uh, you know the Bayesian uh, Bayesian methods for hackers. It was written in PyMC, but it was for the first uh, for the first course. So I wanted them to implement that in their own PPL. And of course, like if you need any help for PyMC examples, feel free to reach out. I will be happy to help, as long as the program is not written in French, because I cannot code in French. <laughs> it's not. It's not in French. It's, uh... <laughs> Who is the audience of that course? What level are they, and what are they studying as a? Major. Right, so it's a second year of master's, and it's a, it's a master where a, a student can choose whatever they want in a, in a relatively huge set of uh, different courses. But most people uh, that were attending the course were focusing on uh, like functional programming, static analysis, programming language semantics, and things like that. And so there was a, a lot of effort at the beginning of the course was to explain what is Bayesian inference and why does it work backward compared to what we are used to. And uh, this is why I said, like, it's, uh, there, is a, there is a gap. Like, you, you, need to cross, uh, you need to cross that gap, and it's not obvious for a lot of people. Like, uh, how does that work, and why are we asking questions about outputs, and who is giving us the, this output for the program? Mm -hmm. And is that one of the main difficulties you saw that uh, students were were having that's one difficulty and uh, so 
really uh, understanding what is uh, inference, like what is Bayesian inference. Another difficulty is that um, uh, what is the difference between like uh, just a Bayesian model where you have your prior and then you do some observations and you extract the posterior and probabilistic programming, which is basically like Bayesian modeling, but on steroids, right? Because you can, you can write a probabilistic program that has no inputs and that computes a really weird distribution using Bayesian inference. And it's not, it's not like the, the classic coin example, right? So there is no real notion of uh, inputs, outputs, but you can still use these objects and define weird model. And the question then is, can we give a, a precise mathematical sense to this kind of objects? What is it and how can we manipulate them? And so this is one difficulty. And the second difficulty is that uh, the semantics that we that we present are based on a measure theory. And uh, it, it's not completely the case right now, but um, it's still not something that is heavily studied in France. And it's possible to, to go around it, right, in your curriculum. When I was growing up, there was, I think I had one course about measure theory in my undergrad, and that, that was it. Like, it was really a, a black hole. Yeah. No, it's not the case anymore, but for some of the students, it's uh, it's something that uh, they have relatively little knowledge about. So that can also be tricky. Yeah, for sure. I can understand that. And so when I'm wondering if there is one main thing that you want to adapt for next semester or next year, and the next time that you're going to teach that course, based on that feedback that you already got from the, the first iteration? That's a very good question. I haven't thought about that at all. <laughs> <laughs> I, one thing that I want to adapt for sure is a, a project. So we, we typically give a project every year. And um, I want the student to be confronted to this notion of inference and inference algorithm re relatively early in the course. And so I want them to try to program it as early as possible. And um, I would like to I want them to have a connection between this kind of uh, inference algorithm and what is really implemented in practice in uh, actual programming languages like uh, PyMC or Pyro or Edwards or things like that. And so um, last year, it was really like uh, implement whatever inference you want and uh, try that on a simple model. And I, I want to do something more guided and maybe a little bit more advanced this year. Nice. Okay. Well. <laughs> really curious about uh, how that will go. So now that we, so almost at the end of the show, so let's kind of de-zoom a bit. And I'm curious, in your opinion, what are the most exciting developments that uh, you see in the field of probabilistic programming languages? That's a very good question because it's a, it's a really active field, like I mean, in many different directions. So I will probably focus on, on a few of them, but uh, one thing is that all these new advances on the inference front, and so uh, there are these things, a lot of work about uh, synthesizing variational guides from your program automatically. Like if you think about uh, the Pyro language, at the beginning, you, you needed to write by hand your uh, inference guide, and uh, it was looking really similar most of the time to the model, at least for basic usage. And uh, they had this, uh, this zoo of auto-guides that they implemented like, uh, relatively recently, like uh, one or two years ago, where they started to try to automatically synthesize some guides. And there are some new works about that that are published even like this year. 
uh, using uh, programming language theory to improve synthesis process for that. So this is really interesting, and this is to be put uh, aside with uh, this uh, new uh, normalizing flow variational inference where you can do, uh, you can have amazing results with that. So I think this is really exciting. I really want oh, to yeah, know sure. about that. The other thing is that for the practitioner, uh, there is this, uh, this entire line of work about the Bayesian workflow. The question is, uh, okay, you have your probabilistic models, but uh, how do you come up with that? Like, uh, and uh, what do you need to be able to iterate over your models to do a better approximations and better inference and stuff like that? And I think this raises a lot of very interesting questions for, uh, for language design. So what, what can you do to help programmer with this kind of workflow? That for me, it's, uh, for me as a programming language designer, this is, uh, this is really interesting. And, and finally, for the, for the semantics, like on the abstract level, there is all these works about the new uh, quasi-borel spaces and probabilistic cones, uh, where people are trying to define, uh, to define measure and uh, sigma algebras of a, of a very weird set, like a higher order function and things like that. And uh, this line of work is fascinating. And I yeah, agreed. Definitely some good stuff uh, ahead. Yeah, and, and actually, if we now go back to Probzilius a bit, if you look ahead, I'm curious what future directions or research areas you see for for Probzilius and, and its integration into to practical into practical systems or industries. So, on a research point of view, we are still uh, actively working on uh, like uh, inference techniques and static analysis uh, around uh, around Probzilius. Uh, but there is one thing that I think is very uh, promising is um, the like leveraging the compiler chain for probabilistic models. And what I mean by that is that if you are able, for, for instance, consider the Kalman filter again because this is uh, like a paradigmatic example for. Like, you know that there is an exact solution and you are able to compute it right. So what if the compiler was able to compute the exact solution for you and generate the code? So if you are able to do that, you don't need to embed the inference engine anymore. And so you can just run the deterministic code, even though you are still working with probabilistic model. And so now the question is, can we do, can we do that for uh, other models? Like, and how far can we go? Can we bound the number of resources that we are we, we are willing to embed and still get some good results, some good approximation results. And what kind of static analysis can we do on, on this kind of, uh, of model? So. Mm, I see. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be cool indeed. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, before we close up the show, Guillaume, I have to ask you the last two questions I ask every guest at the end of the show. So first one, if you had unlimited time and resources, which problem would you try to solve? Yeah, this is a really difficult question for me because I, I'm not <laughs> not really good at selecting projects and uh, and driving people around that. And so I will give a, a partial answer, which is um, I really like the, the French academic system where it's only partly based on the grants, right? So you have a lot of people that can work on whatever they want. And I really like this idea. And I, and I think there is a lot of uh, huge progress that were made because people were working on very strange areas uh, of research, right? So what I would do if I had infinite resources is that I would give like a fraction of these infinite resources to a lot of bright people and say, you can work on whatever you want. And hopefully this will help to solve some of the big problems in the future. 
the, the trick is that a, a fraction of infinity is still a lot, so uh, yeah. they can do with that. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> and second question, if you could have dinner with any great scientific mind, dead, alive, or fictional, who would it be? I'm not great with social events, so a dinner is really stressful event for me. Like, uh, <laughs> you just have one dinner, like, you need, you need to make it right. But, but then again, I, I am fascinating with uh, origin stories, and I, I would really like to, to combine people that can interact together and see how they can exchange their views on, on different stuff. So I would really love to have a dinner with uh, John von Neumann and uh, Grace Hopper, So, like the, the, the first compiler with the first uh, computer uh, designer, and then add John Bacchus for the, the first uh, high level programming language designer and see how they interact and uh, what kind of uh, ideas they can exchange and if that would have changed something in their design. Like, uh, say you start from a very high level, like if you, if you think about curriculums right now in computer science, you really start from very high level uh, programming languages and you typically go down to the chain. And history was the opposite, right? We started from really low-level stuff and building from there. So what would have been different? I think that would make a great dinner. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that does sound good. I agree. Awesome. Well, uh, Guillaume, thanks a lot. That I really learned a lot. That was really a, an original topic in an episode. So uh, thanks a lot about uh, about all of that and, and diving into all the details. Yeah, thank you As usual, we'll, we'll put uh, resources and a link to your website in the show notes for those who want to dig deeper. Thank you again, Guillaume, for taking the time and being on this show. Thanks. This has been another episode of Earning Patient Statistics. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcatcher or podchaser, and visit learnbasedstats.com for more resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes that will help you reach true patient state of mind. That's learnbasedstats.com. Our theme music is Good Patient by Baba Brinkman, with MC Lars and Megaran. Check out his awesome work at bababrinkman.com. I'm your host, Alex Andorra. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andorra, like the country. You can support the show and unlock exclusive benefits by visiting patreon.com slash learnbasedstats. Thanks so much for listening and for your support. You're truly a... Good Bayesian, and change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian. Change calculations after taking fresh data in. Those predictions that your brain is making. Let's get them on a solid foundation.